My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad to be here. We can open God's Word together. If, if you're new here, we're going through a series we have been for a while called The Thread, where we're taking one passage of Scripture from each book of the Bible and seeing how Jesus is the thread that unites it all. So we've made it to Colossians. After today, we'll have 15 more books in the Bible, so we're chugging our way through, and we should finish somewhere around Christmas, maybe a little bit before. So uh, we're going to be in the book of Colossians today. If you have a Bible, there should be one under your seat, perhaps. If you don't have one, the words will also be up here on the screen. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, but I'm going to pray for us and we'll watch a short intro video. Father, uh, we humble ourselves beneath your word. You are a God who speaks and we don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, so we need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate what we need to see in this passage, open our eyes, and soften our hearts so that we can see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae between 58 and 62 A.D. Paul writes to refute cultural pressures tempting believers to turn away from their faith and to challenge the Colossians to a greater holistic devotion to Jesus. Paul begins with a study of the person, nature, and role of Christ, developing a masterful poem centering on Jesus' fulfillment as Messiah. Paul brings the imagery from passages in Genesis, Exodus, the Psalms, and Proverbs to reveal the fullness of Christ's identity as Creator God, Messianic Savior of humanity, and head of the rapidly growing church body. Jesus' victory triumphs over all spiritual and physical powers, freeing the Colossians from their old, fearful religious practices. Paul reminds them that their salvation is by faith alone in God's incredible grace, accomplished through King Jesus. Established with this renewed explanation of Christ's accomplishment on the cross, the Colossians are equipped to deny thoughts, teachings, and practices that go against soul sufficiency in Jesus. The old life has been put to death, with new life found in Christ, manifested in thankfulness, humility, and love for one another. I really have just one main objective in this sermon, and that is to convince you to use the word y'all. So uh, I know we're in the Northlands, we're about as far from the South as you can get, and I confess that I used to be anti-y'all, but I find it helpful. You might be skeptical as well, so I came prepared. Uh, I have three arguments for why this word should be part of your vocabulary. First, the grammatical argument. English does not have a second-person plural pronoun, and that might not frustrate you, but it really bothers me. So if you, if you speak a second language, you know what I'm talking about, this frustration with English. Whether I'm talking to one person or to many people, I use the word you, and that's just not very satisfying. And use guys doesn't count. That's just <laughs> kind of gross. Um, 
This leads us to the second argument, the biblical argument. Much of the time, the word you in the Bible refers to multiple people, to y'all, not to you specifically. In the passage we're about to read, every time you see the word you, it should be y'all. And unless we understand that detail, we're going to read most of the Bible incorrectly, especially the letters of Paul. We'll think that Paul is speaking to me as an individual rather than to us as a group, a collective, a church. And this reason is problematic because of the third argument for using y'all, the theological argument. Christians are part of a family. We are not a lone ranger religion. The biblical authors speak far less about individual Christians than they do about communities of Christians. So most of the commands in the Bible are given to y'all, not just to each one of us individually. Now, this is very difficult for us to understand because we live and breathe in a culture of individualism. Uh, We who live in the West hold our identity, our individual identity, as one of our highest unspoken values. And this is often true outside the church as well as inside of the church. It's just part of our culture. We can't help it. We think that in order to be a flourishing and fulfilled human being, you need to be unique, autonomous, making your own decisions, self-sufficient, forging your own future. I am me, and at the core of me is me. Yes, sure, I'm part of a family, a church, a company, a city, a, a culture, a country, but what is most important is that I can be myself. And that kind of individualism has a, has a lot of effects that we could talk about. One I want to highlight is how alone that makes us feel, how isolated and lonely and aloof Maybe you have struggled to find friends or real community uh, that goes beyond the surface level into something deeper. You don't know how to be in relationships like that that feel authentic and satisfying. Or maybe you had deep relationships once, but then as soon as a conflict occurred, you and the other person didn't know how to apologize or how to forgive each other, and so you just kind of avoid each other now. Or maybe you long to be in a community that is others-focused, that serves and lives generously with one another, but in this polarized and self-centered age, unity feels really unrealistic. In a me culture, every one of us is alone. But in the letter to the Colossians, Paul is going to give us a different way of looking at ourselves. Not as a me, but as a we who are united under King Jesus. So, a little bit of context, Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae, but he's writing this letter to them to correct some of the false teaching that's leading some astray, as well as to address this, address this growing social divide in the church. So like today, in Colossae, there were tensions in the church between people of different ethnic backgrounds, between men and women, between people of different socioeconomic classes. In this thread series, we're attempting to follow Jesus as the one thread that unites every part of the Bible. And why did we choose to highlight this passage in Colossians? We chose it because we've talked a lot about how Paul was really concerned with gospel doctrine. But in this passage, it shows how he is not just concerned with that, about right thinking. Paul is also deeply concerned about gospel culture, about the people of God living out who they are in Christ. Gospel culture is not just believing the right things, but having your community shaped by what we say we believe. How does the gospel change us? How does the gospel address y'all and not just me as an individual Christian? That is what we are trying to learn today, the communal life of the people who follow King Jesus. 
So, we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, and we'll end in chapter 4, verse 1. This is kind of the big idea, summary uh, idea of the passage. Gospel culture is everyone living for the Lord Jesus in everything. Gospel culture is everyone living for the Lord Jesus in everything. There are two main sections in this passage that we'll take one at a time. First, Paul gives us a mosaic picture of what gospel culture looks like, and then he applies it to three short case studies. So let's take those one at a time, starting in verse 12, Colossians chapter 3, a mosaic of gospel culture. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven y'all, so y'all also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts, to which indeed y'all were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in y'all's hearts to God. And whatever y'all do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It changes the way you read that passage if you add the y'all in there. These verses are in the middle of Paul's broader argument where he is telling Christians to put off the old way of living and put on the new humanity that God has given them in Christ. The old humanity has died with Jesus and we're called now to live according to who we are. And Paul uses a clothing metaphor, putting off and putting on our clothing language. So like Mr. Rogers would, at the start of the episode, would come in, he'd take off his suit jacket, he'd put on the zip-up cardigan. Christians are called to be clothed in a new kind of living. But before we get into the commands that he gives, we can't miss these little words at the beginning of verse 12. You might have just skimmed over them as we read. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those three descriptions or titles, I think, are the key to understanding this passage. If you don't grasp who Paul says that you are, you won't be able to live like Paul describes. Why? Well, these three titles are how God described his people of Israel in the Old Testament, and Paul's applying them now to the church. If you follow Jesus, you are chosen, not because of your great deeds or your stunning accomplishments or your inherent goodness, but because of the undeserved grace of God, just like we sang, by grace and grace alone. If you follow Jesus, you are holy, not because of your rule following, but by the cleansing blood of Jesus who died for all the ways that we fail and then gave us all the ways that he succeeds. If you follow Jesus, you are beloved, not because you are lovely, but because Jesus loves the unlovely. And really, Jesus is the chosen one. He is the holy one. He is the beloved one. Those titles actually belong to him. But if we believe that he alone is the Savior and Lord, then the beauty of the gospel is that those titles now apply to us as well. We get his titles. 
We need to get this gospel logic deep into our bones if we want to have a gospel culture. It's the reverse of how we normally think about our behaviors. The Bible doesn't tell you to be holy first. He says, Jesus has made you holy. I've made you holy, so now live like it. God does not tell you to earn love or favor. He says, I love you first, so now live like it. Theologians put it this way, the indicative precedes the imperative. I know, we're back to grammar. Sorry about that. The indicative, meaning to be, who you are, your identity, must come before the imperative, meaning the commands, what you do, your behavior. Don't start with, how should I live? Start with, who am I? Who am I? And then you go, because of who I am, because of who Jesus has said that I am, now I want to live in a way that shows who I am. That's gospel logic. Well, what does that way look like? What, are we, what kind of clothes are we putting on together? There's a lot in these verses that we could talk about, but let me try and group them for you. Paul's mainly trying to describe two characteristics. First, love in relationships, and second, gratitude in worship. So first, love in relationships looks like being others-focused. It's a compassion and a kindness that shows affection and care. It's a humility and meekness that puts your needs ahead of mine. It's a patience and tolerance for our differences rather than demanding our own way. When we get into a conflict, which is inevitable because we're sinful human beings, we forgive like Jesus forgave us. One of the last books that Tim Keller wrote is on forgiveness. I I put the cover up there. It's just called Forgive. In my opinion, it's his best work. In it, he defines forgiveness as two things. It's renouncing revenge and it's being open to reconciliation. Renouncing revenge and being open to reconciliation. Forgiveness actually isn't optional in the Christian life. Notice in verse 13 how Paul says that we must forgive. Now, that doesn't always mean that we're going to be reconciled to the people we hurt and to the people who hurt us. But it does mean that our hearts have been so changed by the radical forgiveness of Jesus That unlike the unforgiving servant in the parable of Jesus, we are always pursuing peace. We're always longing for there to be peace in our relationships. Now, there's complexities with that that Keller goes into in his book. Like, what if it's an abuse situation? Or what if the other person doesn't want to reconcile? All those are good questions. This is a really deep topic. And in my experience, just as your pastor, I know that this is something that not a lot of us have really thought all that deeply about or it's something that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, If you want to meditate more on this, I'd recommend Keller's book. All of these commands are bound together and summarized in one word, love, which is a good word for Paul to choose because it's how Jesus summarized the law, to love God and love your neighbor. So, whenever we're in a situation where we're wondering, how should I act toward this person? And we're in those situations a lot. On Sunday morning, we have all those small little interactions with folks. During our week, we have small interactions with people. Whenever we're wondering, how should I behave or act toward this other person, here's the one question test that Paul gives us. Is it loving? Really, that's what what it boils down to. Is it loving? 
Does, do my, does my behavior, my words, my actions, my heart, does it move towards the other person in love, even if it needs to be tough love at times? But the church isn't just a community of love and relationships. We're also a place of gratitude in worship. So three times in three verses, verses 15 to 17, Paul mentions thankfulness over and over and over again. Our our response to the gospel leads us not only toward love toward other people because we have been loved, it also leads us toward appreciation and gratitude, which makes sense. If our salvation is all entirely by grace, it puts us in a posture of, I don't have it all together, I'm not standing above you, I'm in a receiving posture, and I'm so grateful for it. In verse 16, Paul describes what it should look like when we gather on Sunday morning or in city groups or DNA groups or celebrate recovery or even mom's park day. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. So sometimes that's actual teaching, preaching, but the word of Christ dwelling is us is what we've been thinking about and meditating on the scriptures, the verses that come to mind in the moment because the Holy Spirit is saying, This is what is needed for this moment. We're all about the Bible and the gospel because it is the word and the message that is central to all we believe. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Notice who does the teaching there. I mean, I I do teaching publicly here in the pulpit, but it's all of us teaching. All y'all teach each other using the wisdom that God has given you to speak into each other's lives and also to warn each other when you're going the wrong way. I know the admonishing part of that is not something that's really comfortable for us here in Minnesota. We have kind of two answers to questions. Somebody asks us how we're doing. We say, I'm fine. Somebody says something that we vehemently disagree with. We say, oh, interesting. I'm thinking of getting the the Barbie logo tattooed on my face. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Interesting. Wow. Um, But what Paul is calling us to here is a higher level of community. And really, don't you want to be a part of a community, to be in a place where people know you well enough and care enough about you to tell you if you're ruining your life? It would not be loving if we did otherwise. Moving on, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in y'all's heart to God. So you might notice that our Sunday morning services have two main elements in our worship, preaching and singing. There are other elements, but that's what we spend the most time on. And both are necessary for a gospel culture of gratitude. Why? Because when we're hearing the teaching of God, we're hearing God's words and we're applying it to our lives and we're receiving that. When we're singing, we're singing out of praise to God, but it's still directed toward Him. And I'll go so far as to say that oftentimes more theology is ingrained in our hearts through singing than through preaching. I realize that. Uh, One scholar called singing in the church the kinesthetics of faith. I love that phrase. The kinesthetics of faith. It's the working out of our faith. It's what gets what we believe into our bone marrow. In times of difficulties, singing reminds us of God's past faithfulness and his present control of our circumstances. In times of blessing, singing reminds us that God is good and he defines success, not our circumstances. Through all the ups and downs, one of the historic characteristics of God's people is that we sing. That's why the book of Psalms is in our Bible. With all the ups and downs, we sing. 
And then all of this is summed up by Paul in verse 17. For some of you, maybe this is a life verse. Whatever y'all do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I just want you to grasp how, how radical the nature of that word everything is. With every little word that you said, every deed that you did with your hands this week, there's an opportunity for worship in that. One of my favorite uh, books of prayer is called Every Moment Holy. It's a book of prayers for ordinary moments, making every moment holy. And it's got a prayer there for doing laundry, <laughs> uh, a prayer for when you need to make a, a hurried meal at the end of the day, uh, a prayer for different situations of grief or, or tragedy. Every moment holy is what verse 17 is describing. And altogether, verses 12 to 17, this is a mosaic picture of who we are, Raquel. We are chosen, beloved, holy. And then our love, our gratitude, our relationships, our worship, everything points to King Jesus. Let me unpack that metaphor of a mosaic uh, this, I have a picture of the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis, where Melissa and I lived for three years. Uh, we didn't live in that building, but we lived in St. Louis for three years. Uh, it has the largest mosaic outside of Russia, which is pretty wild. More than 41 and a half million pieces of glass in more than 7,000 colors. That's what really got me. I didn't know there were 7,000 colors. Um, I visited here a few times. It is stunningly beautiful if you get a chance to go. Uh, the reason I call verses 12 to 17 a mosaic of gospel culture is because like the ceiling in this basilica, all of these individual commands form a picture that is more beautiful than each piece alone. So if you're part of this church, think of your life. Think of every word you say, every deed that you do as one single glass piece that you're adding to the picture. Day by day, week after week, all of us together, conversation by conversation, we are making art. Or really, God is making art through us. And so Paul is prompting us to ask, what kind of picture are we making? Is it looking like Jesus? If, if a piece of glass in the mosaic doesn't fit because the word or we deed was not appropriate, not christ like, do we confess and repent and take that piece out and replace it with forgiveness and repentance and something more beautiful? When our words and deeds are in line with the gospel we believe, it creates a beautiful picture together, a picture that none of us can create individually. In fact, it's more beautiful than our individual lives. What I want you to see is the great dignity and worth of your choices whether it is seen or unseen, every decision you make by the power of the Holy Spirit to put on what these verses describe is part of the mosaic of our church community. We are Rock Hill Community Church, right? So whenever you show kindness by greeting somebody who is sitting alone on Sunday, whenever you force yourself to be patient with the flaws of that person in Citigroup, 
Whenever you forgive someone's mistakes rather than complain about them or hold them inside with bitterness, whenever you confess and apologize without excusing your behavior, whenever you thank those who are serving in kids' church, whenever you sing with the worship team at the top of your lungs, whenever you warn your brother or your sister in your DNA group or a friend that they're making the wrong choice, whenever you serve in a way that will rarely be noticed out of humility and love, whenever you live out your identity, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, you are creating a picture that outsiders can come in and see us and they say, these people live differently and I don't get it, but the picture is beautiful, is compelling. I talk with a lot of visitors. If you're here this morning, it's your first time, I'm, I'm really glad you're here, but I, lo- I talk with a lot of people who come into the church Um, And whether they stay or they leave, uh, sometimes it's due to a specific thing someone said or did for them, you know, whether positive or negative. But more often, when I talk to visitors, what they get is the impression of our church. Here's my impression of Rock Hill Community Church. That's what we're talking about here. That's gospel culture, the feel that people have when they come in. And we ask, where does it start if we want to be better? If we want to put on the things that Paul describes, where do we start? We don't start with the commands. We don't start with the y'all shoulds. We start with who we are. We are God's. He chose us. He made us holy. He loves us. So let's live like it. Gospel culture is everyone living for the Lord Jesus in everything. In the next part of his letter, Paul applies all that he's just said, not to the general church, but he applies it to a typical Greco-Roman household in three different case studies. So he's saying, based on how I just described gospel culture in the whole church, what might this look like in a home, in a Greco-Roman home? And in order to understand these verses, I want to bring in a conversation partner for us. His name is Aristotle. So, Aristotle was a major philosopher who lived about 450 years before Paul, and he wrote an influential work called Politics. And it was concerned with the politics, not only of government, but also with the politics of the home. So, Aristotle taught, and this was common belief for people in Paul's day, that the male head of the household was the sovereign ruler over the home. So Aristotle said, just like you have an emperor over the empire, so you have an emperor over the home. Uh, In fact, the male head of the household was the only one who had, quote, a rational soul, who exercised his rule over objects and people of lower status who were basically treated as objects. Uh, Wives, children, and slaves in a Greco-Roman home were not worth instruction, according to Aristotle, except obey. Like, you don't really have to think. Just obey what the man says. And Paul's writing to Christians who are living in this context, living and breathing this atmosphere. What, What is he going to say? How does gospel culture affect a Roman household? So, two preliminary notes before we walk through it. First, two revolutions that Paul makes. The fact that Paul writes to wives, children, and slaves at all is shocking. He treats them not like objects, not like beasts, but as 
equal members of the home, as rational and dignified human beings made in the image of God. That was unheard of at the time, but he takes it a step further. Not only that, he speaks to them before speaking to the male head of the household. You can imagine some of the Colossians who had lived and breathed in this Roman atmosphere, you get to the household uh, section and the male heads of the household are going, all right, tell me how I can teach my wives, children, and slaves to obey me better. And then Paul says, let me speak first to the wives. And the men are going, wait, what? What are you doing there? Let me speak next to the children. Wait. Let me speak to the slaves. And that's the most revolutionary of all. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Paul gives wives, children, and slaves a place of prominence in his instruction. So already he's shattering worldviews. Second most radical move that Paul makes is that he says that Jesus is the head of the home, not the man. Seven times in nine verses, Paul refers to the Lord. That's Biblical language, yes, but it's also the word that Aristotle used. Oh, you think men are the sovereign Lord of their little kingdoms? No, it's the Lord Jesus. They are accountable to a higher authority. So instead of conforming to the cultural social ethic, Paul redirects our attention to the one who truly is the Lord of all. Now, this, this section likely made many in, in the Colossian church uh, think, made them slightly uncomfortable. It may make you a little bit uncomfortable, but hopefully it's uncomfortable in the good way. Hopefully it's the teaching and admonishing that Paul uh, talked about earlier. So let's watch how this plays out in the first case study in verse 18. Wives, submit to y'all's husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love y'all's wives and do not be harsh with them. So according to Aristotle... Husbands are, quote, naturally fitter to command than the female. So, wives should just obey. And unfortunately, many women hear that evil teaching from the pulpit in many churches, that wives should just obey. A recent study found that 40 million people stopped going to church in America in the last 25 years. And of those 40 million people, 10% said that they left specifically because of misogyny. But according to Paul, wives are not called to obey, but to submit. It's a different word, and it's significant that it's a different word. Uh, I was talking with my wife, Melissa, about this, and she had a a good definition of biblical submission. Uh, She said, it means to willingly set aside your right to have things your own way in service to the Lord. Submission means to willingly set aside your right to have things your own way in service to the Lord. So the difference between obedience and submission is an internal and relational difference between being forced to do something by someone who's more powerful or just grudgingly going along with it and voluntarily serving the Lord by serving your family. And that command, importantly, is paired with the command for husbands to love their wives. Now again, in the Roman world, just that command alone to love your wife, it doesn't sound all that offensive for us. It would have been unheard of. A a Roman man would have said, sure, I lead my wife. I command her. I control her. I am the emperor. But love her? That's unheard of. And not only that, Paul takes it a step further. A kind of love that is never harsh, that is never bitter, that is never severe, that never puts her down, that is countercultural. 
Paul is applying what he said earlier about humility, kindness, and love in the marriage relationship. So he's saying, you want to be married, husbands and wives, you want to be married in a gospel way? Outdo serving one another. Whether it's the wife serving through submission or the husband serving through love, both people are trying to be the most sacrificial, the most devoted to the good of the other. Each wishes to please and exalt each other because we serve a higher Lord. Melissa and I have a phrase in our marriage, and that's uh, my selfishness is the main problem in our marriage. And the other person usually responds, no, you've got it wrong. It's my selfishness that's the main problem in our marriage. So Paul doesn't deny that God has given husbands a a lead responsibility uh, in the well-being of his wife and family, but he says that if that leadership looks anything other than humble, gentle, kind, patient. It is not Christ-like servant leadership. You cannot say you're loving your wife if you are harsh, if you put her down, if you violate the commands that he's just given in 12 to 17. So, this is a principle that we'll see in this case study as well as the other two. Uh, Paul is not advocating full-on revolution. Rather, he's advocating subversion, What's the difference? Revolution means overthrowing and abandoning all authority structures. Subversion means fixing broken authority structures, making them better, remaking them from the inside. If Jesus is the Lord of the household, then husbands and wives answer to the king who loved his bride, the church, by dying for her. That's how Paul describes a gospel culture worked out in a marriage. Each of these could be their own sermon, but we're just doing a kind of survey of the way Paul uh, applies these things. So let's move on to the second case study, children and parents. Children, obey y'all's parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke y'all's children, lest they become discouraged. Again, going back to Aristotle, uh, Aristotle said that fathers are kings who have royal authority over their children. So you don't have children, you have subjects. But Paul says that while children should obey their parents, and notice he uses the word obey rather than submit. So looking back at the wives, he doesn't say obey to wives. He says submit, different words. There must be mutual service between children and their parents. You get that? Mutual service applies to husband and wives. Mutual service also applies here to children and parents. Uh, Paul puts a spotlight on fathers. He says, you are not a king ordering subjects around. Rather, your parenting should never result in causing your children to become bitter, to become discouraged, to have broken spirits. Maybe you've seen that kind of parenting. Maybe you've been that kind of parent. Maybe you've been that kind of child where the children are definitely obeying, but they're doing so out of fear. Or yes, the children are listening to you, but they've lost all their innocence. They're so beat down. They've lost all their voice, their dignity. Again, this isn't a revolution. Children, rise up and take the throne. No, but it's subversive. It leads us to ask parents, how does our heavenly father treat us when we rebel? Harsh, cruel punishment to get them in line? All I want is your obedience? No. Gentle correction, pointing us in the right way. Finally, the last case study is worth 
more time because Paul spends more time in it. Uh, Like today, the relationship between masters and slaves in the Greco-Roman world was very complex, so he spends more time on it. Let's read in verse 22. Uh, The ESV translates bondservants. Uh, You have a little footnote that says slaves. I think slaves is a better word here to capture what Paul is talking about. He's talking about slaves. Obey in everything those who are y'all's earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever y'all do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord y'all will receive the inheritance as your reward. Y'all are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat y'all's slaves justly and fairly, knowing that y'all have a master or Lord in heaven. Sometimes you hear people apply this passage to employees and employers, but I feel like that really minimizes the atrocity of slavery in the Roman world. Again, Aristotle taught that a complete household consists of slaves. So in the Roman mind, when you think about the nuclear family, you had the parents, you had the children, you had the slaves. So that's why Paul's addressing them. He's not saying that slaves are a necessary part of a household. He's just saying in this context, here's what a normal Roman household looks like. In many Middle Eastern countries today, uh, there are often slaves like this. They're just considered like, well, you have your parents, you have the children, you have the slaves, although they're often called house workers, even though they're slaves. Uh, Aristotle called slaves, quote, an animate article of property. Isn't that horrendous? An animate article of property that it belongs entirely to the master. And as an animate article of property, they were considered unable to take part in rational discourse. They're a beast, not a person. Slavery wasn't often race-based in this time, which distinguishes it from the American slave trade, but it was just as evil and cruel. And in this context, Paul speaks to slaves like they are human beings, doing something that nobody else in that time is doing. And not only that, he speaks to masters with a warning from God. Let's take that second part first. In verse 25, Paul just kind of throws in this comment that seems really out of place when you read it at first. He says that people who do evil will be judged. And then he just kind of casually turns to those who own slaves and says, oh, speaking of people who might maybe do evil and be judged for it, he names two Roman virtues for these masters, justice and fairness. These were high ideals in Roman society. And he says, okay, so you believe in justice and fairness. Prove it. Live up to it. You say you're a Christian, so treat your slaves like equals. Because if you don't, there is a higher Lord who is waiting to judge. What struck me as I was reading this passage this week was even more so than with husbands and fathers, there is a subtly threatening tone here. But by contrast, Paul gives slaves a new vision for their life situation. So many slaves in this time were slaves, not slaves by choice, or the alternative choice was imprisonment for debts or even death. Earlier in Colossians 3.11, the verse before our passage, Paul says that in Jesus, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. There is not slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. So the situation Paul is writing to in the Colossian church is he's just told them, you know, in Christ there's actually no such thing as a slave and no such thing as somebody who is free. And yet you have slaves who follow Jesus who are set free from sin 
but they still have earthly shackles. So what should they do? Well, first, Paul says that they should obey, but they should realize that they don't really serve their earthly masters, whose temporary authority is only over the body. They serve the Lord. That's a change in paradigm. Second, Paul says that Jesus does not consider them slaves, but heirs. Did you catch that in verse 24? This is radical. Those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus are heirs who will receive the inheritance as their reward. Can you see how that one line just changes everything in somebody's mind who says, I am a slave, I am a piece of property in the eyes of my master. And Paul says, Jesus doesn't see you that way. Jesus sees you as a son. Jesus sees you as an heir. You don't work for men, you work for Jesus. Now, a common question when it comes to slavery in this passage is why Paul just doesn't come out and say, masters, let your slaves go. Why doesn't he do that? It's an understandable question. Uh, The famous atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell took it a step further when he said, the churches, as everybody knows, opposed the abolition of slavery as long as they dared, which isn't all that true. Uh, Answering that objection, that question about why Paul didn't just say, let your slaves go. Uh, It's worth a good conversation over a cup of tea, but here's a, a start to the conversation. The Bible consistently denounces slavery, and it acknowledges the reality that slavery is an ever-present evil. So today, uh, in world history, we have more slaves than ever before. Part of that is due to population boom, but there are more slaves alive today than ever before. And Paul is not condoning it, but he's trying to wrestle with the fact that in the church there are slaves. How do I give them practical advice? How do I try and give slaves and masters who are Christians practical instructions to how this broken relationship could work when they're relating to each other in the Lord? So he's saying, unfortunately, slavery does exist. I'm not going to ignore that. So how do you live if you're a slave and you can't get free? And instead of just ignoring that group of society... He addresses them, and he addresses them more than he does husbands and wives, children and parents, giving them more instruction. And here's another subtle subversion that you don't get when you're just reading this passage. The letter to the Colossians was delivered alongside another letter. It's the letter to Philemon. We're going to talk about it in a couple of months. And it was carried by Onesimus, who was a slave. So imagine this letter to the Colossians being carried by a slave. What Paul is doing with all of these things is that he is sowing the seeds for the eventual dismantling of the institution of slavery. At some point, Paul is saying, if the church is actually living according to the commands of verses 12 to 17, slavery would be unthinkable. And we see that fulfilled here. It's unthinkable for us. Why? Well, partly because the church throughout history has applied verses 12 to 17 and other biblical passages about that to see that slavery is entirely inconsistent with the way of Jesus. Now, I know from American history that slave masters misuse the Scriptures. They misuse this passage of Scripture to support owning other human beings. And yet, we have to wrestle with the fact that at the same time that was happening, at the same time that preachers were using the Bible to keep slaves down. At the same time, there was a vibrant revival of faith among black slaves in America. Why? Why was it? It was because they saw in the Scriptures not a defense of slavery, 
but the promise of emancipation both in this life and the next. The Bible does not condone slavery. It says all people are free, so now live like it. This is gospel culture applied to even one of the most horrendous institutions in America and in history. This is a fascinating topic to study. It is really interesting. And uh, I want to close by summarizing all that we've said in this passage. But if you want to talk more about this, let's grab a cup of coffee or a meal. Let's do it. I'd love to talk about it. This is the beginning of the conversation, right? Not the end. All right. Going back to the big idea. Gospel culture is everyone living for the Lord Jesus in everything. We've seen Paul give a mosaic picture of what gospel culture looks like in the church, which he then applies to three specific relationships in a typical Roman household. We begin with our identity in Christ, chosen, holy, and beloved, saved not by our gospel culture, but by the gospel, which is the bad news that I am a sinner who rebels against God, And the good news that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins to give me a new life. But the gospel is not just a reality for me. It changes the way y'all live, us, by our words and our deeds. Whatever we do, we are all following Jesus and worshiping him. So I want you to see verses 12 to 17 as kind of a Rock Hill code of conduct, (laughs) a church Christian code of conduct. How does the gospel change the way we live? Here is a good short summary of what our corporate interactions should look like, what our relationships and our worship should look like. And then verses 18 uh, to 4.1 are examples of how gospel culture spreads to every kind of relationship we have. So maybe a next step then is to consider, because I serve the Lord Jesus, how does that practically affect all the relationships in my life? How can all the relationships of my life be a gospel culture of love and gratitude? What about my friendships? Do these verses say, apply to uh, any of my friendships? What about my relationship with my employer or my employees? What about our city group leaders or our city group members? What about our youth and our children? What about our grandparents, strangers, the homeless, our neighbors, our government representatives? What about the bus driver? How does gospel culture apply to that relationship? Use your sanctified imagination to wonder with creativity at how the gospel subverts cultural expectations and paints a compelling picture of a new way of living. Now, I'd also like to mention that although some of these principles are clear throughout the Bible, like wives submitting to their husbands, children obeying their parents, The biblical authors give almost no details about how that is expressed in concrete behavior. And for some of you, that's really frustrating. Maybe you've heard other preachers, other people teaching, biblical submission practically looks like this. Wives should not work outside the home. Paul and the rest of the scriptures say nothing about that. Should husbands make the budget and be in control of the money? Scriptures say nothing about that. The principles are clear, but how that is expressed in concrete behavior, the Scriptures don't give us a list of things men, women, children should do or not do. Why? Because the Bible gives us freedom for every family in every time and place and culture to decide together how to apply these principles. So let me give you a concrete, practical uh, example. Say a husband wants to move for a new job, and he has valid reasons for doing so. Uh, but his wife doesn't want to move for that job and has valid reasons for, doing so, for not doing it. 
How, how do you resolve that impasse? It's not like there's a lot of in-between. Either you move or you don't move. In that situation, a husband loving his wife sacrificially might mean really listening, really listening to her concerns, coming up with possible compromises, checking his own heart, making sure he's not just doing this for selfish or unwise reasons, seeking out other people to give advice. It might mean not taking the job because you love your wife more than you love the job. In this situation, a wife submitting to her husband might be listening, really listening to his reasons for wanting to move, uh, speaking her honest opinion with kindness, openness, working together for a possible solution, and it might mean trusting your husband if he still decides to do the thing you disagree with. Tim Keller, again, has wisdom here. Uh, In our home, we call him St. Timothy. Uh, Keller says that in situations like this will happen in a marriage, hopefully not often. Uh, Where partners disagree, you're trying to work through those differences of opinion in a Christian and a loving way, but at the the end of the day, you still can't agree. And there are situations like that, but they should not be often. Most situations, you're able to apologize, forgive, come to a compromise. Well, what do you do in those very rare situations? Keller says that that a wife's submission might look like giving her husband the tie-breaking vote and giving him the responsibility for how it ends up. And when I've heard Keller talk about this in sermons, I I heard him say once, this has only happened three times in my marriage to Kathy, and two of the three times I was wrong. I should have listened. I made the wrong choice. Your marriage doesn't need to look exactly like that, but that's an example of how we're all trying to put on love and gratitude and apply these principles to our own lives So, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, how do you need to grow in contributing to our church's mosaic? Is the Spirit stirring in your heart as you glance over this passage, one in particular area where you need to put off and put on? I just want to give you a a, a vision as, as I close that this is not all reliant on us which in a passage that's very command-heavy is the temptation. Say, if we don't do this, nobody will, and that's not true. Jesus will. When Jesus returns, he will make all of us to become what we are meant to be, a community that has no more malice or envy or greed or lust or hate or violence. The peace of Christ will rule in our hearts completely. The Spirit of Christ will renew us entirely. I just want that picture of the mosaic, I want you to realize that we are building something, we are making art, but when Jesus returns, he's going to finish it, and he's going to make our little contributions so much more beautiful, fit together in ways we couldn't have imagined. He's going to take out all of the things that we should have taken out. He's going to put in pieces that are far more beautiful than we could have done ourselves. Forever into eternity, these people here, as well as people from every class, ethnicity, and background, will sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we've sung for our whole lives and ones that we've never heard before. So praise the Lord for that hope. Praise the Lord that gospel culture does not rely on us. Praise the Lord that the gospel does not rely on us. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It is all of grace. So, may we, Rock Hill, be just a glimpse of what that mosaic will look like 
and the new heavens and the new earth. For the watching world, may they say Jesus in us. Let me pray. Father God, you are remaking us. You save us as we are, but you don't keep us as we are. So I pray for our family that we would not be individual Christians trying to live our lives solo, that we would be together, living in love, living in gratitude. Give us wisdom for the application of these things. What does it look like in my relationships, in my family, in my friendships? What does it look like in my church? Lord Jesus, come quickly. We are so excited to see what you will make us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.